This tragic day may cause the white side to come to terms with its conscience. In spite of the darkness of this hour, we must not become bitter. We must not lose faith in our white brothers. Life is hard, a time as hard as crucible steel. But today, you do not walk alone. Martin Luther King Jr. This was the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing, and this is the good, the bad, and the pure evil. Years before the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing, Birmingham was an extremely tense, violent, and racially segregated city, a place where any racial integration was met with violent resistance. Martin Luther King Jr. said it is probably the most segregated city in the U.S. Birmingham's commissioner was a man called Bull Connor, and he would make it his life mission to have segregation remain in the city through any means possible, be it violent if needed. African Americans and whites in Birmingham had separate amenities and public gathering places. There were only white police and firefighters, with most African Americans working as cooks or cleaners. Few African Americans in Birmingham were allowed to vote. Bombings at the homes or institutions of African Americans were common well before the 16th Baptist Church, but none of them resulted in death. The constant bombing had Birmingham being called Bombingham. Civil rights activists and leaders in Birmingham tried their best to fight against racism. They were asking for lunch counters and parks to be desegregated, to be for all. They wanted criminal charges against demonstrators and protesters done away with. And they wanted the discrimination in employment opportunities removed. The work the civil rights activists did in Birmingham would be a guide to others in the site to fight against racism and segregation. The 16th Street Baptist Church was a three-story building and a rally point for civil rights activists in the spring of 1963. It was a meeting place for civil rights leaders like Martin Luther King Jr., Ralph David Abernathy and Fred Shuttlesworth, to name just a few. They organised and educated marchers here, and students would come and were organised and trained by James Bevel. May 2nd had over 1,000 students, some as young as eight, who left school and gathered at the church. Demonstrators were told to march downtown and discuss with the mayor about racial segregation and integrating buildings and businesses. The march was met with huge resistance and 600 were arrested on day one. But the campaign continued until May 5th. On May 8th had an agreement reached to integrate public facilities like schools within 90 days. But resistance was high, bombs were detonated and the 16th Street Baptist Church being a popular rally point was an obvious target. September 15, 1963, early that Sunday morning, four members of the United Clans of America planted at least 15 sticks of dynamite with a timer under the steps of the church. The four so-called men were Thomas Edwin Blatton Jr., Robert Clambless, Bobby Cherry and Herm Cash allegedly. At about 10.20am a call came into the church. The Sunday school secretary, who was just 14, named Carl Maul, answered. Then down the line a man said three minutes and hung up. 
Less than 60 seconds later, the bomb went off. Five children were in the restroom in the basement, changing for choir. One survivor commented, the explosion shook the building and cast girls across the room, quote, like ragdolls, end quote. The force was so intense it put a seven feet hole, uh, hole in, the church, in the church's back wall. A crater five feet deep in the ladies' basement lounge demolished the back steps and expelled out from the church so mighty it blew a passing motorist off his, out of his car. Parked cars were destroyed, windows of homes blown out. The church's stained glass windows were destroyed except one. It remained untouched and it was Christ leading a group of children. As the smoke cleared, hundreds, some wounded, came to the church to search the debris for survivors. Police barricaded the area and tensions were high, with many men scuffling with police. About 2,000 African Americans came on the scene within hours. The pastor, Reverend John Cross Jr., tried to calm the crowd, reciting the 23rd Psalm. Four girls were killed in the bombing. They were Addie Collins, who was 14, Carol McNair, who was 11, Carol Robinson, who was 14, and Cynthia Wesley, who was also 14. The explosion was so intense, one of the girls could only be identified by her clothing. In 2001, Reverend Cross remembered the girls, quote, on top of each other clung together, end quote. All four would be pronounced dead at Hillman Emergency Clinic. Between 14 to 22 others were injured, one of which was Addie Collins' younger sister, Sarah, who was 12. She had 21 pieces of glass in her face and was blinded in one eye. Later she recalled seeing her sister Addie just before the bomb went off. She was tying her dress sash. An older sister, Junie Collins, who was 16, she was uh, in the basement reading her Bible and said she saw Addie tying Carol McNair's sash before heading upstairs. Violence would erupt hours after the bombing. Reports came of African Americans and whites hurling abuse and items at one another. Police would urge parents of both to have them stay indoors. Governor Wallace of Alabama ordered 300 state police to calm the situation. An emergency city council meeting was called for safety measures, but a suggestion of a curfew was thrown out. Within 24 hours, businesses and properties were um, firebombed and cars were destroyed and stoned. The mayor, Albert Bout, well described the bombing as, quote, sickening, end quote. Attorney General sent 25 FBI agents, including bomb experts, to do a thorough forensic investigation. The national and international media got the story and reported it, with many feeling sorrow and making it clear the civil rights struggle isn't being taken seriously. Two more would die hours after the bombing, Johnny Robinson and Virgil War, who were shot dead. Johnny was shot by a policeman and he fled down an alley, and when he failed to stop as ordered, he was shot in the back. War was 13 and he was shot in a residential suburb. Larry Sims was 16. He shot War with a gun given by another youth, Michael Farley. Larry and Michael were riding home from an anti-integration rally. 
When they saw Roar, Larry fired twice. Both Larry and Michael were convicted later of second-degree manslaughter, but the judge suspended their sentences to just two years probation. Some blamed the governor, George Wallace, creating the environment that led to the killings. A week before the bombing, Wallace spoke to the New York Times saying Alabama needed, quote, few first-class funerals, end quote, to put a stop to integration. The city of Birmingham offered $52,000 reward for the bomber's arrest, with Wallace offering $5,000 more. It was accepted, but Martin Luther King Jr. sent a telegraph to Wallace, making it clear the blood was on his hands, how he created this environment, and how this had violence, how this had violence and now murder. Investigators at first thought the bomb was thrown from a passing car, but September 20th, the FBI confirmed the explosion was from a device planted beneath the steps to the church. Wire pieces and bits of red plastic were found, which could have been part of a timing device. Days after the bombing, investigators focused on a splinter group of the KKK called the Cahaba Boys. They were formed in 1963 because they felt the KKK were becoming soft. The group was linked to many bombs attacks on African American businesses and leaders' homes. They had fewer than 30 members, among them were Thomas Blatton Jr., Herman Cash, Robert Shambliss and Bobby Cherry. Investigators got many witnesses telling of a group of white men in a 1957 Chevrolet, turquoise in colour, near the church at the early hours of September 15th. The witnesses said a white man got out of the car and went to the church's steps. The description of the man depended on the witness and could have been Bobby Cherry or Robert Shambliss. Robert was questioned by the FBI on September 26th. On September 29th, he was indicted for illegally buying and moving dynamite on September 4th. He and two friends, John Hall and Charles Cagle, were convicted on October 8th. Each got a fine of $100, about $850 today, and a suspended 180-day jail sentence. At the time, no federal charges were filed against Shambliss. The FBI had issues investigating at the time. They had the names of the four, but witnesses were too scared. They were clan men from the extreme group, and physical evidence wasn't great. So no federal charges were filed in the 60s. May 13, 1965, local and FBI investigators named Blanton Chance, sorry, Blanton, Che, Cash, Shambliss and Cherry as the bombers, with Shambliss being the leader. This was relayed to the head of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, who wouldn't proceed with prosecutions. Later in 1965, Hoover formally blocked any waiting federal charges against the suspects and wouldn't share any evidence to state prosecutors. In 1968, the FBI formally closed their investigation without filing charges and the files were sealed by the order of J. Edgar Hoover. Officially, the bombing remained unsolved until January 1971, when William Baxley, who was elected Attorney General, within the week of being elected, he looked at the police's original files, finding them mostly worthless. Baxley reopened the case in 1971. 
With his want to help and appearance to care, he built trust with those who once didn't want to testify. Blacksley got witnesses pointing Shambliss as the one to plant the explosives. He also got evidence proving Shambliss bought the dynamite two weeks before the bombing. All this was used to construct a case against Shambliss. Blacksley got his hands on the FBI files and found out it hadn't been shown to local prosecutors. It wasn't until 1976 that he was formally given the FBI evidence after threatening public exposure of the Justice Department withholding evidence. November 14, 1977, Robert Shambliss, who was then 73, stood trial. He pled not guilty, admitting to buying the dynamite, but saying he gave it to Klansman and FBI agent provocator uh, Gary Rowe Jr. Baxley could reti- uh, called retired policeman Tom Cook on November 15th, who had a chat with Chambliss in 1975. He said in their chat, Chambliss admitted buying the dynamite but giving it to Rowe. Baxley then called Sergeant Ernie Cantrell. He said in 1976, Chambliss told him it was a different KKK member. Charles Fan, a person who had helped search for a survivors, remembering seeing a man who he said was Chambliss standing at the barricade looking at the church like, quote, a firebug watching his fire, end quote. Chambliss' own niece testified against him. Reverend Elizabeth Cobbs said he would repeatedly talk about it and tell her it it being quote one man battle end quote against the blacks since the 1940s she said she said chambliss told her that the day before the bombing he had enough dynamite to quote flatten birmingham end quote november 17 closing arguments and baxley would call chambliss who would say he wasn't the only perpetrator the defence would attack the evidence calling it purely circumstantial. Deliberations lasted six hours and found Chambliss guilty of murder. That afternoon, Blacksley subpoenaed Thomas Blatton to appear in court regarding the bombing. Blacksley knew he didn't have enough against Blackton, but hoped that the subpoena would scare him to confess and ask for a deal. But Blatton's lawyer had him refuse all and any questioning. Shambas appealed and he complained evidence was circumstantial and his rights were violated regarding a speedy trial with a 14-year delay. It was dismissed um, in 1979 and then Robert Shambas died October 29, 1985. While in jail, he was in solitary confinement for his protection. Stories are not, is not over yet. In 1995, FBI reopened the investigations and they unsealed 9,000 pieces of evidence. May 2000, the FBI announced the bombing was done by four members of the Chabada Boys. They named the four as Blatton, Cash, Shambliss and Cherry. Shambliss we knew was already dead, as was Herman Cash at the time, but Blatton and Cherry were very much alive and were both arrested. April 24, 2001, Thomas Blatton Jr. was brought to trial. He, bled, he pled not guilty and chose not to testify. 
The most crucial evidence in the case was a recorded discussion between Blatten and his wife. He clearly says twice, quote, plan a bomb, end quote. His wife was accusing him of an affair with a woman called Willen Vaughan, and he was accused of seeing her two nights before the bombing. Blatten states he was at the Klansman meeting saying, quote, you've got to have a meeting to plan a bomb, end quote. The trial lasted a week and had seven witnesses for prosecution and two for defence. The jury deliberated for two and a half hours and found him guilty of four counts of first degree murder. He died in prison June 26, 2020. So Bobby Cherry was tried May 6, 2002. He pled not guilty and didn't testify. Crucial testimony was done by his ex-wife, Willadine, who said he boasted about being the one to plant the dynamite and returned hours later to light the fuse. On May 22nd, the jury found him guilty and sentenced him to life. He died in 2004 on November 18th from cancer. There is a possible fifth conspirator, the man Chambliss kept blaming Gary Rowe Jr., who was an FBI paid informant but did take part in violence against African Americans. He failed two polygraphs regarding the bombing, and this had the FBI convinced he had a part to play. He was never formally charged and cleared in 1979. The failed test could mean Chambliss' accusation had some truth to it. After the bombing, the church remained closed for eight months. On the 27th anniversary, a state historic marker was unveiled at Greenwood Cemetery. May 24, 2013, President Obama awarded a Congressional Gold Medal to the four girls. It is to recognize their deaths and served as a major catalyst for the civil rights movement and sparked the force to ensure the signing of the Civil Rights Act in 1964. And that is the story of the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing. Hit that like button. If you're not subscribed, please get subscribed. And join me next time for the story of Louis Garavito called La Bestia or The Beast. And he is a Colombian serial killer monster. October 1999, he confessed to assault, torture and mutilation and murder of 147 minors. Until then, this was the good, the bad, and the pure evil.